0: Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of Dreaming Radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's stream.
1: I am joined today with Malika Cox. We talk about restorative and transitional justice. Um, We talk about the ways that harm and violence within our society can begin to be shifted and addressed in ways that are non-punitive and aren't focused on punishment or carcerality that we don't need to respond to harm and violence within our communities and within society in a ways that discards and disposes people, but we really can still begin to see the humanity and shift entirely sort of the ways that we look at harm and violence. And restorative justice is one of the ways that we can do that without a focus on prisons and policing. A really big part of this podcast is dreaming and dreaming of the society that we want to see and really doing the work in the present to build that society. is what we talked about on the last episode with Dr. Vought and abolition. So come into this episode with an open mind, thinking about a society without prisons and policing, and building communities of mutual accountability that really seek to transform harm and to ensure that harm and violence are no longer the norm within our society. Let's get into it. Malika received her Master of Arts in Practical Theology at Regent University, and a Master of Philosophy in Conflict Resolution and Reconciliation at Trinity College, Dublin, Irish School of Ecumenics. She jointly won the James Hare Dissertation Award for her peace-building research on Palestinian and Israeli dialogue in cyberspace, and is currently working on educational curriculum on restorative justice practices. She is passionate about criminal justice reform, restorative justice, and policy changes that impact marginalized communities. Malika is the pastor of spiritual formation, justice, and community life at The Table in Oklahoma City. Malika speaks and teaches on anti-bias, diversity and inclusion, race and reconciliation, and transitional and restorative justice practices. So welcome Malika Cox to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. How are you today?
2: I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here with Miles. We met but a couple years ago and it's been great just getting to see your work. And so I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And me and Malika have had many conversations and have gotten to see her work from afar. So excited to have this conversation and to really dive into Um, this idea of reconciliation and conflict resolution, but especially restorative justice currently with the conversation around abolition and the defunding of the police. There have been many conversations about if we're reallocating funds from the police department across the country, where do do those funds go? A lot of organizers have been uh, making the argument that among other things, they should be going into restorative justice practices. So you know, I wanted to have this conversation to sort of map out what restorative justice is, what it looks like, and sort of how the current criminal punishment system responds to, to harm or to violence within our communities uh, or this idea of crime. So I guess my first question for you, Malika, is where does the criminal legal system today, where is it getting it wrong in regards to harm and to, you know, wrongdoing within our, within our society?
2: Well, I think that's that's a great question. Um, I think we have to really look at the fact that the core root of our criminal justice system is punitive justice. It's punishment. Um, It's also monetization. So there's also a level of corruption and greed. And really, if you start to look at the roots of the criminal justice system, you can find those roots in slave codes, in black codes, in Jim Crow, um, which lends itself towards private prisons and mass incarceration. So I think, one of the things that restorative justice actually can bring to the table is that it can uh, not just reform kind of toxic fruit. Everyone wants to reform policing with getting rid of police brutality or maybe uh, disparity of sentencing or mass incarceration. But the reality is we have to really look at the fact that our criminal justice system is punitive in nature and it doesn't value or really bring any kind of dignity to human beings. So we got to look at restorative justice, and restorative justice practices. And I'm just going to give you a definition um, that I've worked through. There are restorative justice practices that are very individual. I'm using it as an umbrella. So it's a system of criminal justice which focuses on the rehabilitation of the offenders, the healing of the victims, and the repair of the community at large. One of the things that restorative justice does, it helps to break cycles of generational trauma because the reality is we have a criminal justice system that criminalizes trauma responses. And mm-hmm. that's why we have such a huge incarceration rate, the worst in the world. And if you look at Oklahoma, we're historically one or two. Um, it also interrupts the trajectory of generational incarceration. So you look at these kind of school, to pipeline, prisons. Well, restorative justice can can actually break that cycle. But here's the thing. And I know, unfortunately, people always want to know what's in it for them. Okay, so we're talking about restorative justice is going to help overly incarcerated communities. But the reality is these practices show a lower recidivism rate, which means people are less likely to come back out and commit a crime. When we start to implement restorative justice practices, we're looking at a safer Community, we're looking at people instead of going to jail, are paying taxes, investing their finances. We're looking at at literally reducing our prison budgets by millions of billions of dollars if you start looking at it nationally. And ultimately, we're investing in our own communities so that our whole city prospers. But the core idea, restorative justice, is we're valuing people as human beings. We're valuing communities. We're recognizing that redemption and restoration are very real things and everyone deserves them. Um, There's more to it when you start looking at the root systems that are much more corrupt and we do need to address those, but those are more transitional justice practices. It's the restorative I think we can start to implement and really make a difference in our incarceration rates and in our recidivism rates, which are people going back to prison after having been released.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that definition and as you described, it really helps to map out the ways that our current criminal punishment system punishes people, but doesn't necessarily restore them or rehabilitate them. And what people often think prisons do or punishment does in general is that idea that it's going to teach them a lesson and that they'll never go out and do those same things again. And so those, that recidivism piece, I think, is really important to note because oftentimes, you know, with uh, offenders who, you know, are in prison for um, drug offenses um, and things of that nature, I mean, they're in prison time and time again because we're not addressing yeah. sort of the root causes of, of why people are, are there or are in prison, right? And that's what I think restorative justice really. And that piece, I think, that you talked about with the, the humanizing piece is huge, Because currently our criminal legal system, our criminal punishment system, completely dehumanizes people after they've been labeled a criminal and just sort of tosses them away and society at large just forgets about them. So I wonder if you can talk about accountability and sort of the ways that punishment or the punitive justice that our current criminal legal system holds onto doesn't really hold people accountable when they've done some type of harm and how... Um, restorative justice, and you can also get into some transitional justice, um, if you like. Sort of does a, a significantly better job at actually keeping people accountable, um, and then also for for victims to to heal.
2: It's such a good question because currently we know that we aren't actually holding people accountable or warehousing people and victims um, actually in studies show that victims who go through restorative justice practices like conferencing and circles actually find um, much more healing and people who go through offenders who go through restorative justice practices the recidivism rate goes down but i'll say some of the things that i think are really important to note is in the late 60s right around dr king the civil rights movement kind of some of these Scandinavian countries like Norway and Sweden and Denmark, all of these countries started to just decide they were gonna radically go from punitive justice, to restorative justice. So it's been five decades. During this time, they decided that they were going to get help for, say, somebody who has a drug addiction, they actually find them help. Somebody who's a low-level offender, they give them resources. You can look at Halden Prison. Halden Prison is for the worst offenders in Norway. And yet, you're called by your first name, not even your last name, let alone a number. The guards don't have weapons. They play um, games together. There's a... um, very low walled If you want to escape, you can. In there, you get college courses and GED courses and pet therapy and garden therapy, and you're actually rehabilitated. And this is a diverse group of people in Sweden. They'll say it's, you know, well, that's a homogenous group. That's not true because there are people from all over the world in Sweden and their population represents it in prison. This is a diverse group for the worst offenders, and yet their recidivism rate is like I think ours is like 76%, theirs is like 28%. It's ridiculously low compared to ours. And so they decided five decades ago they were going to just completely reestablish their criminal justice system based on restorative justice. Now you can look at like Amsterdam is renting out their prisons to other countries, Norway, Finland, they're actually turning their prisons into hotels. And they are some of the most financially prosperous countries in the world. Cause they're not spending that money on warehousing people. They're actually investing in people to come back out and be functioning citizens who can invest back in their community. So I think restorative justice gives us this opportunity to, A, value people. We have to stop monetizing prison. So that's like an absolute that comes out with restorative justice practices. But then we look at the accountability factor where you're talking about some of these like uh, conferencing or mediations where you bring in may be somebody who's robbed a business and you have the family-owned business and you have the person who stole and you see these stories where they come face to face and the offender has to acknowledge the harm that they caused because they hear the stories of the victims and often you see afterwards Times will happen where business owners will hire the person, they work off the money to repay what was stolen, and then these bonds are created. Um, You see that in transitional justice. You can take the um, South African Truth of Reconciliation Commission, which was not perfect, but it is an example we have where Black South Africans were allowed to tell white South Africans of not only their abuse, but you killed my son, you killed my father, you, you know, you did these things. The individual soldier had to sit there and listen, and at the end of it, they would ask them, "How, how can I make amends? And how can I repair?" And ultimately, they're held accountable, and that means they take ownership for what they did if they did it. If they're there rightly, because we know people are incarcerated who are innocent, but. If they actually commit the crime, they admit to the crime, they listen to the victims, they take responsibility, and then they're part of the repairing, uh, repairing the world, repairing the community, repairing that individual. And it's a beautiful act. And when it's done, the community itself is safer. And um, I think that's so important is that we're such an individualistic society, but other places around the world are much more collective. And so when our criminal justice system is so punitive and individualized, it doesn't produce good fruit in our communities. It actually harms our communities.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you can talk a bit about sort of like a restorative justice process, particularly from the standpoint of the victim who's been harmed or offended in some type of way and how it sort of centers their healing and literally restores whatever's been taken from them or um, whatever harm or trauma has been inflicted upon their, um, you know, the well-being.
2: I remember hearing one story from the South African uh, Truth and Reconciliation, where it was this kind of conferencing, where you would bring in a victim and an offender, and the offender would have to listen to the harm. Now, this is um, just one story, and there's plenty of stories that are less dramatic, but this one is very intense, because the man had killed her husband and her son. The soldier who was guilty admitted to it, had to listen to it, and then the woman turned to him and told the stories that she's alone now. And so the soldier said, how may I repair? How can I be a part? And she said, come on Sundays to dinner and let me cook you dinner because I have no one to cook dinner for. And so this is some of the things that you see when you actually face truth. And I think that's one of the things that our criminal justice system isn't isn't concerned about. It's concerned about quotas and uh, contracts and plea bargains and bail bonds and monetization. But like when you come to restorative justice, it's about taking responsibility, facing truth, listening to harm, and seeing how together as a community, as offender and victim, we can join together and we can repair. And I think that's the beauty of restorative justice. It's not only about valuing human beings and bringing back dignity, which is intrinsic, but it's about how we repair the world. And I think that's something that we've completely lost and we can see that in the fruit of mass incarceration.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. I think oftentimes when people think about someone's done some type of harm to them, whether low-level harm or high-level harm or wrongdoing, and sort of the knee-jerk reaction is wanting some type of harm to be inflicted upon the person who harmed them um, and wanting sort, sort of some revenge or vengeance. That's what happens, you know, within our current criminal punishment system and sort of the pure nature is I want to punish the person, I want this person to feel pain or to feel some type of hurt. So I wonder if you can sort of walk us through what it might take for people to understand that that's not really, that doesn't leave much room for healing um, and how punishment won't really heal that whatever wounds have come from the harm that's been inflicted upon them in the ways that restorative justice, holding people accountable, and for the offender to to really make amends for the harm they've done and admit to the harm they've done. I think you just touched on this really well, the fact that the entire point of our current criminal punishment system is to prove that you didn't do something, right? So even when somebody has sexually assaulted someone, right, or hit someone or what have you, their entire objective is to prove that they didn't. And our criminal punishment system does a really good job of not believing victims of violence. So I wonder if you could just talk about sort of this idea of not really wanting revenge, but wanting accountability, but also wanting for themselves to, to be able to heal, and then also for the community to heal and to get to a place of safety, and how restorative justice sort of holds that to its core.
2: You know, I think there's lots of great studies out there that um, show that the greater the sentencing and the more severe the punishment, the higher the recidivism rates. So the reality is, as much as we want to be uh, tough on crime or we want to do these harsh punitive activities, it doesn't produce any type of results that are good for the entire community. -hmm. And it's vengeance, and ultimately, you know, as we are a community of people who see value and dignity in people, vengeance isn't really going to ever bring healing. There's studies that show the people who have had a, a loved one killed, whose offender is killed by the death penalty, that they show a lot of that doesn't resolve any of the actual pain that victims feel. I mean, there is a sense maybe of some resolution and closure, but it doesn't do what restorative justice does, and there's studies for that, but I will say this, and I think this is something that frustrates me, because I'm a pastor, and I find that when you, like, I live in Oklahoma, we live in Oklahoma, and it is one or two historically when it comes to mass incarceration, high execution rates, um, very much into vengeance, and then yet the core teaching of the person Christianity, you talked about an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. It's not at all in any way to me Christ-like to be thinking punitive. I think that's that's actually misunderstanding the ways of Christ. And um, you can look at other Abrahamic faiths and other faith traditions and teachings, but generally when you look at like a real spiritual principle is kind of this pathway towards forgiveness. I mean, you go through the five stages of grief. I I get it. There is anger and there's depression and there's bargaining and there's all of these things, but ultimately, you know, these, these spiritual pathways lead towards forgiveness and acceptance and restoration and redemption, but that's not our criminal justice system and people don't make money on that. And that's a reality we have to deal with is People have to stop making money up our criminal justice system or it will never be restorative. And it will continue, continue mm-hmm. to uh, have mass incarceration and outrageous amounts of money thrown at putting people away in warehouses that are going to come out and commit crimes. It's just, it's almost absurd when you look at the cyclical, like, we keep doing the same thing. Nothing changes, nothing changes. Like, we need to look at a higher path and start to look at restorative justice practices. Scandinavian countries have done this for uh, five decades, and they're seeing drastically reduced rates. You see that um, in Sweden, they have a law where prostitution is considered a crime against gender. So they're not prosecuted for prostitution. They are actually given resources, but men are, and they drop their human trafficking rates almost down to zero, and their prostitution and uh, rates in half because we realize that women aren't necessarily opting to go to this field. It's actually a field of last survival. Of You know what I'm saying? It's not something that's necessary choice. So if we started to look at like veterans who are in the OK Oakley, Oakley County Jail because of drug abuse and maybe think, oh, no, we're actually criminalizing trauma responses. There are domestic abuse victims inside the OK County Jail. And there are women who go on because of failure to protect that law into prison for 27 years because they didn't prevent someone much larger and scarier from causing harm to their child and not recognizing that they were also being traumatized and abused. We are criminalizing people with trauma responses, young people who see no future, who don't think the system is rigged fairly, who are using marijuana to medicate themselves, and yet you go to the suburbs and you see heroin and, op- and all these opioids, and yet that's a health problem. But in certain neighborhoods, it's a drug addiction. No, we need to rethink the entire thing, in my opinion. We need to get at the root of this punitive justice, which is sometimes attached with really punitive religion, and we need to examine it and see why we think this way. We need to start to use transitional justice so we could deal with the post-atrocities of Jim Crow and slavery and black codes and redlining and all these things, the kind of war on drugs and all these little avenues that led to our mass incarceration, right? And then we need to start implementing diversion courts like like a lot of these countries do, in Scandinavia, conferencing, which is really an indigenous practice um, taken from the circles that a lot of the indigenous um, communities use. And then we need to look at reimagining what incarceration looks like. What do, should prison look like? Do we want to call people by a number? Do we want to rob them of their humanity and then bring them back into society? Like, it's It's almost insane to me that we think these practices are OK, and we're going to throw millions and millions of dollars at it it's that old saying of nothing changes, nothing changes. Like it's time to make some radical changes.
1: Yeah, that's great. You, and you hit on a, a lot of good points. I think especially sort of the the criminalization of surviving gendered violence, domestic violence, um, the criminalization of poverty. And, you know, what we have so often in our current modes of incarceration and carcerality in our country is the fact that, we're not just throwing bad people in prison is what we often think, but we're actually throwing people in prison who have been harmed, who violence has been inflicted upon them, whether interpersonally or through the state. And very rarely is justice actually served for those people and specifically for the marginalized. So I wonder if you can talk a bit about sort of how people who are listening to this episode can begin to, Build accountable relationships interpersonally, and sort of how you know the work of restorative justice and just community accountability in general can begin to to get built in friendships and partnerships uh, within familial ties what have you
2: yeah that's a really good question. I know of um some people doing that work I don't know if you know um the Palmer sisters, but they have something called the conversation workshops and they do interpersonal activism and they're amazing. I just love them. They're great entrepreneurs and they do that work. I actually came into a lot of discussions on this, the Sparrow project, Kim and Brad Bandy. Uh, they work alongside the resettled refugee community and, and just bringing resources and relationship. And I think there's some people who are really doing some good stuff. And I do think for Oklahoma city, there's kind of a justice community that's gotten its mind around neighbors and neighborhood and how we can love our neighbors and love our neighborhoods. And I think that's really important. You know, I think getting in touch with your sort of council person like mine is James Cooper. He's great. Mm-hmm. Like, I know him. I go down, I know Joe Beth. She's fantastic. She invited me to speak at some things. And so I think it is getting out and knowing if there's a workshop on there, I remember going down, there was an Oklahoma County jail talk, and, and I was fascinated by it. I came to realize that that's one of the worst human rights violations in the country, mm-hmm. which now, supposedly, I have not seen it, has a, a mental health resource center in it, which I think is fantastic. So we definitely have some of the biggest challenges, but we have some of the greatest people here, and in that, I think, it just you got to take the initiative, get out there, meet your city council person, get out there, start going to some of these community dialogues. I mean, Facebook is always showing some sort of dialogue. Nikki Knights is amazing. There's all these people who are doing this great work. And I think it's just like rolling up our sleeves and getting together at the local level, because I do want to see things happen at the national level. It's important to me, particularly when it comes to transitional justice, that is more, you know, macro than micro. But I think what we see is that you've got to get involved locally besides just voting is is getting with your representatives, getting these community conversations. We need to see real change happen on the ground. And that generally happens grassroots when it comes locally.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, get to know your neighbors, right? Like we don't know our neighbors anymore. We don't like live in community. We don't live in community with with our neighbors anymore. And like, we don't know who we live next to or around. And if we just get out and like build those relationships so we can get to a place where when harm occurs within our community, we're able to, to respond in um, a way where, you know, we, we can humanize each other because we actually know each other and we're not feeling a need to constantly, you know, dial 911. So I think, I think that's huge. And then also just building those relationships, you know, with your friends and family where, You know, human beings, we harm each other, we do wrong, we make mistakes, we say the wrong thing, we all do it. So nobody's above remiss. And I think it's important to note that everyone's redeemable. Nobody is just inherently bad or inherently violent. People often do these things because of the conditions that they live under. You know, when we talk about sort of these larger systemic issues, right, that people often resort to what we call crime because they are living in poverty or they don't have access to housing or they don't have access to food, right? And they're having to resort to these things that we've criminalized. And that's what we mean when we're saying that uh, we've criminalized poverty within this country. We've criminalized homelessness quite literally all over in states all over this country. So I think that's crucial to, to understand. I wonder if you can talk a bit sort of on, on a larger scale, this transitional justice and how the work and research that you've done in Palestine um, and also how, you know, that could possibly done here in the United States with the long history we have of inflicting great harm and violence and oppression upon marginalized groups here.
2: Well, that's my passion. I love transitional justice. And I really feel bad we past time in the United States, way past time to start dealing with transitional justice. And I think transitional justice is just a way for society to heal collectively It would be like an individual who experiences uh, great trauma or violence, and the response is, well, forget about it. That was, you know, that was the uh, last year, you know, move on. Well, that doesn't happen. Or you have a trauma in your marriage, and you're like, well, forget about it, you know, forgive and move on. It's like, no, we have to process it. We have to deal with it. We actually have to go through the five stages of grief, likely, and then at some point, we're going to accept it, and we're going to come to a place and move on, but that comes after dealing with it. And that's just not different collectively or societally. If we've suffered trauma, particularly if you're part of a marginalized community, because that brings up the whole genetic memory and intergenerational trauma that's not resolved in our our DNA, like we need to resolve this before we move on in our own DNA, which for those who are not familiar with intergenerational trauma, you know they've done studies that show that the DNA from people who were in the death camps in Auschwitz and some places like that actually changed after they went through the Holocaust. And then their children's DNA was the same after. So it shows that trauma actually changes our genetic makeup. And then we transfer transferred that onto our children. And so our children, it's almost like our children's DNA still cries for justice. Mm. And so how do we resolve? intergenerational trauma. How do we move forward? Well, we're gonna have to do what we were talking about all along. Like, I loved what you said about even our entire criminal justice system. It's like, you didn't do it. Show me that you, like try to prove that they did do it. It's all about facing truth. Mm -hmm. It's all about, we're gonna take a minute to look at something gruesome and we're gonna have to grieve and we're gonna have to mourn this. You know, intergenerational, I mean, sorry, transitional justice comes in several different ways. Obviously, it can come from a very macro from the International Criminal Court when they try war criminals. Now, the United States is not a subscriber, so obviously that's not an option for the United States. But there are other ways. There's truth and reconciliation, which they did in South Africa. They've done in Canada with um, the native boarding schools that we actually had here in Oklahoma, too, that were horrific and brutal and genocidal. We haven't really done Truth and um, Reconciliation. I know there was a small Truth and Reconciliation Commission when it came to Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And I think the what came out of it was you need to have extracurricular on this, which is, I think, it should be in every single book. <laughs> Starting at a very young age across the country, because that's what they do in Germany. Germany, one of their transitional justices is that elementary age, um, you're learning about the Holocaust. So that's that's transitional justice. That's teaching like we we see this, we don't want this to happen again. And we don't do that with slavery. We don't do that with the genocide of indigenous population. We don't do that with Jim Crow. We don't do that with really with the Trail of Tears. It's like just a blurb. We don't really get into these atrocities and we never want to commit again. So that can come through, obviously, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They have a lot of things called healing through remembering where they'll have people come and tell their stories. And that works like some of the... Um, survivors of Black Wall Street. They, um, they would tell their stories. Their children would tell their stories. And there is something in us that heals when we tell our stories and something that is in us that heals when we hear other people's stories. So I think storytelling is important in transitional justice. There's commemoration. When, you, when I was in Warsaw, there was a huge uh, memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, and it was very quite controversial. People didn't want it to go up, but Warsaw knew that it had to have something that commemorated that. Brian Stevenson is doing the uh, lynching memorial in Alabama, and I think it's one of the first, I mean, we have a few things. We have the lynching memorial with the African-American Museum in DC, but I do think that lynching memorial is the beginning of transitional justice and commemoration that's so important. I'm sorry that my dog is whining. I don't know if you can hear him. <laughs> He's just okay. saying "Amen" and "Preach." So yeah. <laughs> the other um, the other things that we can do is reparations, and I know that's a hot topic, and people are having their minds around it. But reparations is a from the word repair. And we need to repair the relationship, which was always asymmetrical. That's the thing about reconciliation is we forget that uh, European heritage and African heritage Americans have never had an equal uh, relationship. It has always been asymmetrical. So we're talking about repairing a relationship, a country that was built on the backs of slavery, enslaved people, off its stolen land. So there's got to be some sort of repair and And through that means reparations. And, you know, people always think that means necessarily money. It doesn't always mean money. It can mean mental health accessibility. It can mean scholarships to schools. It can mean really pouring resources into under-resourced communities. There's a billion ways to do reparations, but we got to start the conversation. I know the African-American community is talking about it, but we need everyone to get on board and realize we have to deal with the genocide, the slavery, the Jim Crow, the war on drugs, which caused our mass incarceration rates, which is still modern-day slavery. And until we begin to really address these atrocities, I think our criminal justice system will continue to be a cyclical, destructive force until we're able to address its systemic roots in slavery.
1: Mm. Talk a little bit about the asymmetrical power dynamics and sort of the Absolutely.
2: In, yeah. Well, when I did my research in uh, Palestine, was one of my research was to figure out why Israeli-Palestinian dialogue towards building was not working. It wasn't. it had been going on since the 60s and 70s. I was there in 2016, 2017. I think it was there in the summer of 2017, doing my research. And um, the reality was you couldn't get people from each side together. And there were a lot of barriers. One was a lack of shared space. One was uh, basic segregation, but the big, big issue that I found repeatedly was asymmetrical power dynamics. By that meaning, if you brought a Palestinian to what is considered the Israeli part of Jerusalem, for example, you bring somebody, I mean, if they were from the occupied Palestinian territories, they're going through a checkpoint, meaning they could spend five hours in that line. Now, they, if they get to that line without any violence, they're coming to a, to an area that might not be safe for them, and then they would meet, they would grow to like each other, and then they would enjoy, they I like hummus and you like hummus. This was kind of the ongoing joke. And then it was like, obviously the person who's marginalized and say, okay, let's talk about my rights, equal rights and status. And the person who wasn't like, I've got no control over that. And then they become defensive and I can't change that. Well, I don't even know why I'm coming here when you can cross the street. And it happens here in Oklahoma city, you have these, conversations where you're asking people of color to drive to a part of town where frankly, they could be pulled over. It's costing the person in that part of town nothing. If you don't recognize asymmetrical power dynamics, those dialogues are gonna go south really quick. So what we learned was, and what I studied is technology and how technology could kind of circumvent some of those issues It was accessible. It was inexpensive and anybody If the infrastructure allowed for it, that was the only time it really didn't. Because when you looked at Gaza, you were looking like their electricity goes out half the time. You know, they couldn't get online. But you could have people who were in Ramallah Skype with people in Jerusalem, and they wouldn't have to make that barrier of that kind of asymmetrically. Now, regardless, eventually the conversation is going to get to your rights and status. Hey, I don't feel... I have full rights and status in this situation. And that just happens here in the United States. Ultimately, people of color who are making the truck to kind of go to the dominant culture are generally like, hey, I still feel, don't feel safe. And I drive my car at night as a black man or as a black woman, I know it's my responsibility to educate everybody. And uh, I know I'm not getting paid as much. You know, ultimately it comes to those things and it's very easy for dominant culture white people to bow out of those conversations. OK, well, I was here for reconciliation. I'm here for relationship. And it's like, well, this relationship isn't symmetrical. Yeah. Therefore, there's a problem. And so that's where it's like how we cannot talk dialogue. And in fact, I don't, I don't generally talk dialogue on, on conflict resolution if we don't address power dynamics. So once we at least, hey, this journey cost me a lot more than it did you and if we at least establish that point then we can move forward
0: so
1: one last question for you Malika this podcast is called dream radically something that we often like to preach at foundation for liberating minds is the need for all people to be able to dream and then for their dreams to actually be able to to come to fruition someday um, as we're fighting for it so I wonder if you could talk about what your radical dream is and you know you can take it wherever you want and any subject in regards to transitional or restorative justice, our criminal legal system, but what's your radical dream?
2: Well, that's a beautiful question I have to first say. And for me, I'd like to think of our city, state, and even our country as a garden. I want the whole garden to flourish. I want every plant to get all of the resources, the nutrients, the elements that it needs to flourish. Um, But right now, we can just take Oklahoma City as a microcosm, and there are parts of the city that are flourishing and doing well, and there's parts of the city that are not. And that's because some parts of the city have hogged all the resources and hogged all the elements, and there's weeds, and there's rocks in the soil. So I want to go in and I want to dig in that soil and make the soil healthy and make the soil sustainable for every single plant, every diverse plant, every beautiful plant unique to grow. And that has to happen through uprooting systems of injustice, white supremacy, patriarchy, all these other things that are clogging up the soil that only a few plants flourish. I want to be able to go through and let's address issues of resources. Let's address things that are post-atrocity that are still having effect today like slavery and uh, Jim Crow. Let's deal with the fact that women are half the population and never half on panels. That drives me crazy when I see panels for like justice and there won't be a woman or there's a token woman. No, we're half the population. I want to see half the representation. I want to make sure that women are paid the same as men. We're half the population. There's no reason we should be making less. You know, I want to be able to see a world where every single person flourishes. And and it's because they have the resources and the elements. Everybody gets sunshine and rain, but not everybody has the same soil. There are weeds, there are rocks, there are things that need to come up and out of the soil. And then I want us to be a a, a city, a garden that actually cares for each other, that we're good gardeners, that we're not throwing away plants because we don't understand the plant. We're not caring for the plant that needs a little more nutrient, a little more coffee grounds in the soil. I want us to be a flourishing society that is not only individualistic, because I do think you know there's such great things about being Western and, and recognizing our talents or so guess what? we've got to kind of get some of that Eastern idea of collective identity as well as that we're all here for one another. We need to learn that loving your neighbor is like the essential of just being a good person like take care of one another it's like basic principles you learned in kindergarten and I want to see them implemented macro to the mesa to the micro from the top down let's be institutionalized friendliness institutionalized neighborliness let's come along and create a society where everyone's given a chance to flourish regardless of your race your gender identity faith tradition or no religion or abilities or uh, your your love orientation or even your documentation status. I don't care I want to create a society where everybody flourishes and that's my heart and I think the only way to do that is we start first by calling out and pulling up systems of injustice
1: that analogy is awesome that's beautiful that's beautiful that's That's wonderful okay thank you so much malika
2: thank you miles it's an honor to be here you are great i
1: appreciate you coming on
0: thank you for listening the dream radically podcast presented by foundation for liberating minds like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at FoundationForLiberatingMinds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.